most employer branders either come from the recruitment side of the house or the marketing side of the house, which is good and bad. Uh, there's no right way and no right path to employer brand. Everybody and all of us, we stumble our way into it one way or the other. It's fine. There's no good or right way to do it. They each have pros and cons, though. And while recruiting has its own set of cons and pros, I won't even get into that, people such as myself who came in from the marketing side, who came in through the marketing door, we come in with a lot of baggage. And that baggage is this, marketing and branding. <laughs> marketing your, marketers and branders see the world in a very, very particular way. It's a, re, it's a perspective that is reinforced over and over and over again on a, on a daily and hourly and sometimes even a minute-to-minute basis in that industry. And it is an idea that isn't true when you get to employer branding. Think of it as brainwashing. All of us marketers have been brainwashed in this certain idea, and on a certain level, we need to unbrainwash ourselves to get good at employer branding. What's that idea? We'll find out. We'll talk about it in a second. Thanks so much. It's it, ta- the Talent Cast, Season 2, Episode 2. Uh, we're going to do this is the audiobook of Talent Chooses You, brought to you and sponsored by recruitmentmarketing.com, a community for recruitment marketing professionals. So go check those out and check them out. It's recruitmentmarketing.com. As you know, if you've been listening, this is the audio version of Talent Chooses You 2.0, the sequel, the revenge, the son of uh, Talent Chooses You. How is it the sequel? Well, I'm going to read the audiobook of my book, but I'm also going to add a lot of stuff. Uh, turns out I may have either learned things in the last three years since I wrote this, or maybe I just changed my mind. Who's to say? So here we are, episode two. We're going to talk about one of the most foundational ideas in employer brand. And it is an idea that while I feel like I talk about a lot, <laughs> and I do, I don't think other people do at all. In fact, I, I think most people don't talk about it enough. And this is a, a drum I would bang all day long if you let me. So let's get into it. And it's this simple idea. Hiring is a game of quality, not quantity. Let's pretend you're selling tacos or, or donuts or, or toothbrushes. It doesn't matter, right? These are things that are inexpensive. They cost, uh, let's, let's just say they cost a dollar. And by the way, that's a cheap donut or cheap. That's a really cheap taco. But anyway, let's just pretend. So you set up a stand or a cart and you kind of hawk your wares, right? Hey, everybody, I got donuts. I got tacos. And anybody who walks up to you with a dollar in their pocket is a potential customer. They are a valid and viable customer. Your job is to convince them that your item, the taco, the donut, whatever, is worth the dollar to them. Perhaps they will give them more than a dollar's worth of feeling of satisfaction to eat that taco. Perhaps it'll create, create uh, it, will, it will sate that sweet tooth in a way that they'd be willing to spend two dollars, but you're only charging a dollar. What a bargain. Or maybe you convince them that brushing their teeth will keep them from needing costly dental work down the road. Either way, your item is a value and they'd be crazy to reject it. The conversation is all about value conversion. Change your money for goods or services. And that's fine because that's, you know, commerce. <laughs> at, a, at a fundamental level, that's called capitalism. That's called an economy. I, I have a good, I have a service, and I want to sell it to you whether you, you know, and I don't care about it. All I care is that you can pay for it. If you have a dollar and I have a taco, let's make the magic happen, right? Your goal as the seller is to replicate this transaction as many times as possible. If you sell the taco, your next step is to do it again. You were rewarded for selling 
lots of tacos. Becoming the best taco salesperson is a game about selling the most tacos. And having spent time in sales, this is true everywhere. This isn't a taco game. This is the goal of sales is more. You are rewarded as the best salesperson because you sold the most. There's no equivocating, or are you the nicest person, or are you the are you the cleverest, or whatever. Did you sell the most? End of criteria. So in this process of selling a taco or a donut or whatever, do you ever ask your buyer if they have a college degree? Or did you confirm that they have a, a reliable mode of transportation? And since you're in both in the same place, do you don't, probably don't have to wonder if they live close enough to you, right? Or that they're certified to eat that donut? Do they have five years of donut eating experience? Can they provide the names and contact information for three people who can confirm that you know what you're doing with a donut? How many different varieties of donuts can they discuss with confidence? Hey, I have a whiteboard. Can we do a diagram of all the donuts you've eaten in the last couple of months and how you might sort stack rank them given in a list? Hey, I I see a gap of three months in which you weren't eating eating any donuts. Can you explain that gap? I mean, of course, that sounds crazy. But have you ever heard of someone saying they only had one donut and they were going to sell it to the best customer? The one who was a culture fit? The one who embraced the mission of the donut? No! That'd be nuts, right? If you have a donut and they have a dollar, that's it. We're done. To to quote Mitch Hedberg, who is, by the way, a genius comedian, I hope rest in peace, um, It's a donut and a dollar. Why do we even need a receipt? The transaction is completed, right? It doesn't matter if they don't have a work visa or a degree or pass a drug test or have, you know, a conviction on their their record. Dollar, donut, dunzo, right? But when we're talking about hiring, we aren't selling donuts or tacos. We're looking for a specific person to do a specific job. And we wonder what school they went to and what other jobs they've had and what the outcomes of their work was. We immediately reject them if they don't have enough experience. We reject them if they don't look like a fit. We reject them because they were arrested once. We reject them because someone was just a little bit better. Hiring isn't a game of quantity. Because generally, we're filling one role and we want the best possible person. We want one person, so we seek the best person, right? If we're talking about talent and it's a role in which the best possible person adds value to the company, it's not a burger flipper kind of role, then you are only going to hire the best. If you're hiring commoditized work, you can say, do you meet certain levels of specifications? Can you do the job? If so, yes, great, you have the job. You don't fire them because someone else came along who's better, You've got someone who does the job, so long as they don't screw it up. Now, this seems kind of prima facie obvious. And by the way, prima facie is a a way of indicating that I have gone to college and I think I'm smart. Um, It's a vocabulary word. What do you want? It just means someone's face, right? It's on its face obvious. It's stupid obvious. But the difference that underlines all hiring and differentiates it from any other kind of marketing is this. It's the foundation of all that we do. Here's me banging the drum. This is what differentiates employer branding from every single kind of marketing in the known universe. The rest of the world's looking to build more hours, sell more time, build more widgets, train more people, take more cases, fix more pipes, take on more clients, create more leads, more, 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 more. We live in a world driven by quantity. And if we blindly apply marketing and sales techniques designed for quantity, to a world begging for quality, it's a disaster waiting to happen. If you're selling donuts 
and you sell a million donuts, you're getting a raise. If they'll put your picture on a wall and underneath will say salesperson of the year. But if you're selling jobs and you get a million people to apply, you're getting fired because there's no way those people could do the job. Maybe some of them could, but you are making the job so hard for the recruiter because you've made the pipeline too big, right? Applying great or clever, and frankly, if you're applying genius level marketing thinking to employer branding, it won't actually solve your recruiting process because of this fundamental difference, right? Tennis, golf, and billiards are all played with round balls, but you can't swap them out and call it the same game. You, you can't do it, it can't be done. You've got to appreciate that this is different. And this isn't academic. This isn't just a way for me to sell a book, right? This isn't a way for me to sound smart. It's simply a way and it's simply a crucial element that you have to consider when you go looking at new tactics and looking at new platforms. When someone does something cool in marketing and you go, cool, I want to do that too. Yeah, cool, but it doesn't actually serve you. Is it serving quality? Or is it serving quantity? And for the most part, frankly, if it's not a straight up employer brand gig, it's serving quantity and that doesn't serve you, right? Our whole industry is built on a wholly different foundation to everything, to everything else everybody does, right? The whole concept of commerce is more. What we do is not about more. You don't want a million people to apply. Frankly, you don't want a hundred people to apply. You don't want more than two people to apply. The only reason you want to is so the hiring manager can feel like they said, yeah, you were great and I'm going to hire you and you were great too, but just not quite as great. Makes them feel like they've made a choice. That's all we need. Anything more than that from a recruiting standpoint is literally wasted energy, time, and resources. And as we're going to talk about in a minute, it actually kills you. It actually makes your job harder as if that's possible, right? as if recruiting wasn't hard enough. You've got to embrace this simple difference, this foundational difference before you can solve your problems. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. Next section, entropy kills the system. Recruiting's 99% problem. By the way, I swear, I think while I know I went and learned the word entropy in physics at some point in high school, I really learned it from Dr. Who, fourth doctor, Tom Baker. Yeah, I'm that nerd apparently. Um, Let me define entropy a little bit here for you. I'm gonna do it poorly, but because I think it's important here. Entropy is the stuff that breaks down And the problem with entropy is it creates more entropy, right? If you have an engine that's running very, very smoothly, there's very little entropy, but you have to keep adding lubricant and you have to keep kind of, you know, tweaking the dials and tightening up the knobs to make sure it continues. If you don't, one of the gears starts to wiggle and it creates friction 
it slows the engine down. The engine has to work a little harder to maintain the same, but as it works a little harder, it makes more of the jiggle. It makes more of that, that cog wiggle. It makes the belt move in and out incorrectly, and it slows things down, and that belt wiggling, and that creates more wiggling around there, and that entropy slowly takes the entire engine down. The entropy will kill a system. The inefficiencies make it harder for you to do your job. I want you to keep that in mind before we enter this whole section, right? So here we go. So perhaps you got thrown by the suggestion that recruiters are doing things, a lot of things they were doing 50 years ago, that the advent of technology hadn't made a huge sweeping change in the process of attracting and sorting and selecting talent, right? But like rehabbing an old house, the walls, the paint, the the layout might be new, there might even be wiring for a sound system. There might be wiring for Ethernet. People do that. We're all Wi-Fi, right? Um, it doesn't matter. You may have replaced the bathroom with a brand new, gorgeous steam shower and tiled it all perfectly, but the whole of the house sits on a foundation that may predate the war. Yeah, pick a war. You're talking to somebody living in a house built in 1928, <laughs> and I'm not the record, right? Um, the foundation creates the shape. And it creates the opportunity for what can sit on top of it. And no matter how new you make that house, it's constrained by the decisions that were made when they poured the foundation. And the same is true for recruiting. Yeah, are there versions of AI that can pull a potential needle out of a haystack of applications in the blink of an eye? Yeah, they're pretty cool. But recruiting is still based on this model of building lots and lots of haystacks as the way of manufacturing needles. Now. I'm no expert at needle manufacturing, but I don't think that's how needles get made. I think you start with iron, you start with metal, you forge it, you drop pour it. You don't put a bunch of hay in a pile and then hope the needle shows up. But that is how we do recruiting. We just assume if we put as many hay, you know, hay together as possible, the needle kind of shows up. When there's a problem finding someone to fill a role, Foundational thinking starts with we need bigger and better haystacks because they think the creation of the haystack creates the needle, right? They think that because with a big enough haystack, we'll always have the talent we need. And that's wrong. I mean, like Archimedes and a lever, a recruiter thinks that with enough applications, they'll be able to hire the world, whoever they want. And this makes recru you know, recruiting a game of quantity, which we already decided it isn't. It's so strange to apply quantity thinking to a quality game. Some companies, and you know, you think of like a Google or a Facebook who are so well known as being such a great employer, and I will quibble with what that means all day long. Um, and if you work there, good for you. I'm not saying you're a bad person by any stretch. I'm just saying the fact that you're the most desirable doesn't make you the best in any way, shape, or form because we haven't defined what best is. But like Google gets so many applications every single day. It's like they could make their own white label LinkedIn on their own based on what personal information people have handed them via resume and application. And they collect more every single minute. They have so many applications on files and yet they complain about the talent just as much as anybody else. Trust me, I know them, they do. You know, if you look at the core stack of any, you know, the tech stack for recruiting, it starts with a base level ATS, right? The application tr applicant tracking system is the core and the foundation of everything that happens, right? And it, it's there to manage the process of opening jobs and holding applications. And that's the baseline. It's a database, but that's the foundation of the house. 
It forces the recruiter to focus on spreading the job as far as possible to as many job boards. Frankly, ATSs sell themselves as having the feature of we share jobs with more job boards than anybody else, as if that's a positive, right? They, their core purpose is to ensure the maximum number of eyeballs see the opening. I don't know that I want that. In fact, I'm going to tell you that. That was a nice way to play a say. I don't want that. My mother, who is a lovely human, has no need to, you know, to see your JavaScript job. Okay? She will never do the job. No amount of college training, no amount of boot camps will make her good at that thing. It is not what she's put on this earth to do. Why push it to her? And keep that in mind, because by the way, just two days ago, I got an ad on Facebook, sadly, for Amazon, sadly, but the product they were pitching me was floppy drives. <sighs> this is 2021. It's the day before 2022. Floppy? Floppy disks? They're selling me a 10 block of floppies? What? But that's the game of marketing. It's about how many eyeballs can you put in a thing? The more eyeballs see the thing, the more they win. Yay. But that's not how we work, right? Just because you can shoot that job to as many people as possible isn't a value add. It's in many ways bad, as we'll see in a minute. And then you, you know, you internally you ask people to share the job and you ask the, the, the manager to share the job and put it on social media. You ask the manager's team to share the job. Um, you, and maybe you buy an ad. Maybe you buy lots of ads to ensure that lots of passive candidates, people who aren't looking for jobs, see the job. Uh, you might hold a recruiting event. You might hold a sourcing jam or a sourcing sprint. You might build brand new outreach messages so sourcers can go out to the world and spam the bejesus out of people they don't know about this job. Everything is about building the biggest haystack because that's how they think there's what they're supposed to do. Also, because that's how the resources are designed and also it's what we've asked them to do. Again, I'm not telling recruiters they're bad people by any stretch. You have just been found yourself in a situation that is broken. So let's unbreak it, but let's start by identifying what and why it's broken. And the strategy is really simple. It's all about scale, right? Get the most people to apply and later the recruiter can kind of filter that list down into something manageable. <sighs> Every element in that whole process is designed to create the most applications and it's nuts. It's like a big old net that you're dragging across the seafloor, you know, and you're collecting, sure, the fish you want, but you're also collecting rocks, dead animals, uh, coral, um, anything that happens to be lying in the ocean, <laughs> let's get into tin cans and plastic, right? You're collecting everything. That's kind of how hiring works. And then when you pull that net up, the recruiter is expected to kind of go, this is crap, this is crap, this is crap. Oh, good, something that's edible. This is crap, this is crap. Now, when I complain about recruiting and I say this is what recruiting does, what I'm really trying to get to is this idea that recruiters, is that how you want to spend your time? Are you talent sniffers? Are you sorters to sort between the tin can and the trout? No, you are professional people people. You're there to engage people in the process of casting the net as wide as humanly possible so you can troll and grab as much stuff so you can force yourself to spend an hour sorting the crap from the not crap. That is not where your skill set is. Let me be plain. That sucks. 
okay? Can we all agree on that? That is not where you should be spending your time. But the process is there to ensure that you stuff the top of the funnel with as much as possible, even though most of it's crap. Sourcers might focus on the potential quality of a candidate, but the ad doesn't, the job board doesn't, the social media post won't. Everything is about scale. More eyeballs, the better. Frankly, people get paid for scale. The more eyeballs see it, the more they get to bill. There's incentivized to make sure that idiots and morons and people who don't even speak the language that you are trying to hire for can see this. You don't want to know the data. If you want to look at Bob Hoffman, and this is an aside, uh, his newsletter is <clears throat> a gut punch every week about how bad the advertising industry is. Current data suggests that if you spend $100 on programmatic ads, only 30 to $40 of that go into ads that people actually see. And there's no indication that they're the people you actually wanted them to see it. The ad is a the, the industry is a mess. So it's not just recruiting, it's the whole ad space, but here we are. Right? So given all this process, it's no wonder that every requisition is littered with candidates who can't and will never do the role, who will never get serious consideration. This is a process of burning time and energy. This is a very definition of wasted effort. Again, it sucks. Depending on the role and location, a recruiter could see dozens, hundreds of applications for the same role. I've seen openings that get closed because they hit 350 applications and the recruiter just kind of throws their hands up and says, I, I, I can't, I, I can't. I literally don't have time to go find somebody good in anything more than that. 350 applications in an ATS, which takes 12 clicks between each, each application to see their resume and kind of give them this, you know, the three seconds of consideration it takes. Just do the math. That's like three hours of time. How? <laughs> so before we get to that part, in fact, let's, let's avoid that part. Let's keep things simple. I like nice round numbers, don't you? Okay, so let's pretend you get at 100 applications for the role. Now first, congratulations. Getting 100 people to apply is <laughs> it's not easy. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a thing. You did a thing. You should pat yourself on the back every time you see that. It's going to suck for you, but you know, let's just start. You got people to spend their time and energy to push the buttons and do the thing and upload the resumes so that you could see them. Getting 100 applicants means you've recruited effectively in the eyes of your industry, to your hiring manager especially. The problem is to anybody outside of recruiting, it doesn't sound effective at all because it isn't. So let's start, let's start with that haystack of 100, 100 applications. Because this is a game of quality rather than quantity, the recruiter's job is to sort out the people who just aren't capable of doing the job, right? You filter out the crap to see what's edible. And then when you see the statistics that a recruiter reviews a resume for like the average of 30 seconds, you might wonder how anybody without kind of superhuman power can review a resume in 30 seconds. Well, obviously they can't. See, what happens is, in this stage of the process, the recruiter isn't looking at every single resume going, oh, I'm going to understand who this person is. No. Their job is to figure out, is this crap? Can I label this crap and throw this out? Doesn't have the right skill set? Out. Doesn't have the right education? Out. Doesn't have, has a gap in their resume? Out. Uh, you know, 
doesn't have the right uh, you know recent job out they took a lot of jobs and a job hopper out their last title was too high out their last title was too low out 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 it's all about filtering out right in this haystack model the recruiter isn't looking to learn about people they're looking to remove the hay piece by piece looking at each one just to see is this a needle no throw it out it doesn't take more than a couple of seconds to see that if something isn't obviously, you know, is obviously hay, it's obviously crap. Even if that piece of hay is gray or is a little heavier, right? The process can turn a haystack into a pile of potential needles really, really quickly, I guess. And when you make it that smaller pile, it's easier to evaluate. So the recruiter is really there to find, to take the 100 applications and turn into 20 candidates who cannot be eliminated just obviously in six seconds. Okay. So that pile of 20 is then gone and reviewed again with more consideration. They read the cover letter, maybe. Does it suggest the right attributes? Are there success stories? Are there positive outcomes in the resume? Do they have all the skills? Do they have just have some of the skills? Uh, the recruiter starts to sort rank these 20 to identify the 10 or so who could potentially do the job. Okay. Those 10 get a phone screen. And in the phone screen, they're not trying to figure out how do I make best friends with these people. They're not necessarily evaluating, are these people perfect candidates? What they're doing is looking to see, can I throw them out? Do they have two heads? Out. Do they have the wrong temperament? Out. Do I get the sense that they're lying about their experience? Out, out, out. I'm trying to remove you from consideration. That's the job of a recruiter. And suddenly that pile of 100 is now at five. Now, those five aren't the best people. Those were just the people the recruiter couldn't very quickly throw out. They met enough of the criteria to say, well, they're worth considering. And then they bring them to the hire manager who might toss some of them back, but their goal is to say, hey, from these, let's say five candidates, hire one. So you do an interview pool and you do a bunch of dates and you, you, know, you interview people and kind of walk them around the office. And over the course of a few days, some candidates get rejected because they just are bad candidates and they just came across well on paper. And the remaining ones are ranked in terms of preference. The number one candidate gets the offer and if they accept, everybody else gets dispositioned, which is the nicest possible way to say that they get rejected. Now, that doesn't even enter into the possibility that the hiring managers say, yeah, I don't think I want these people. Start again. To which you go back to square one, you rewrite the job posting, you maybe give it a little polish or revision, and you start it all over again, which is, sucks. So this is, you know, kind of an ugly way to say it, but that's how most companies hire. And it looks the same today as it did decades ago when applications came in via the Sunday paper, right? I remember going to the Sunday paper and looking at classified ads and sending my resume to a P.O. box, not a company, just a P.O. box who said they needed someone to do a job that I thought maybe I could potentially maybe do. <clears throat> That's still how we do it. It's just a, on the internet and ATS and not via P.O. box anymore, right? In the, the quest to fulfill the business need to hire, the company will interact with 100 applicants and you know you ignore the people who see the ad or saw the posting and decided not to apply. We're, we're keeping this simple, right? But if you think about it, interacting with 100 people to get one hire, and by the way, that person has a 50-50 chance of even being successful or staying for a year. 
100 people to get a 50-50 shot of getting one person, that's an incredibly painful, expensive, inefficient process. Have you ever seen how saffron is harvested? A human, not a machine, you can't do this with machines, a person has to use a pair of tweezers to extract a single hair-like tendril from an orchid that only blooms a few days a year. Think of all the dirt and the water and the sun, the fertilizer and energy it takes to get enough strands to flavor a single dish. This is kind of what it feels like to hire people. All that time, all that energy, all those people, all that process to get that single tiny little thread that hopefully is good. Now, saffron is more valuable by weight than gold. And when you see how the process it is to, to create it, you understand why. But recruiting, sadly, isn't seen that way. Recruiting is a cost center we try to squeeze to be as small as humanly possible. Just saying. But what happened to the people, who, the 99 people who didn't get hired? If we look back at the recruiting journey, we can see that those people, these are people who pin their hopes on getting a job. They, they wanted to like you. They wanted to like the company. They wanted to like the brand. They were interested enough to give you their personal information. And then you threw them away. Now, the 80 who were rejected out of hand because they didn't seem obviously like a fit or could do the job, and in your six seconds of just skimming the resume looking for a reason to throw them out, they didn't meet basic criteria. Okay, great. At best, they're going to get a form letter a disposition, which is, again, a horrible term. The form letter will be the same for every single role, whether it's an intern, a team leader, or a director. It's the same letter. Sure, you might code it so that it says, dear name, and it says, thank you for applying to the role, but that's not personalizing. <laughs> not even close. The content will have, effectively, the warmth of your average roll of tinfoil, right? The letter may say, we're so sorry the process will not continue, but you don't feel like any sorrow is happening. There's no emotional connection. You just said the word sorry, or we, we regret. Do you? Do you really regret? Really? Right? But this is a, a letter that was borrowed by legal from a third-party worksheet with HR's oversight. There's no love here. There's no passion here. There's no emotion. There's no regret or goodwill. This is horrible. Let's be clear. The goal of the form letter is not to create goodwill. It's not to further the brand. It's not to express sorrow. It's not to thank someone for their application. The only goal of this letter is to tell the applicant to go away, that this process is now over and there is no need to contact the recruiter anymore. Thanks. Here's your hat. There's the door. Don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. The purpose is to spare the recruiter the task of having to talk to the applicant because they are no longer valuable to the recruiter. Wow, there's some power dynamics there that we should really unpack one day. Now that assumes the applicant even gets sent anything. There's enough data on what percentage of companies actually bother to send a form letter to show that people say they send the letter, but it doesn't actually get there right? Every company thinks they send or they dispossess or they, they, they close the loop. No company says they ghost people. But if you ask candidates, and I'm going to ask myself, uh, yeah, they do. And whether it's because the email never gets to where it needs to go, whether it's because it's blocked and sitting in spam, or simply because the whole ATS system is designed around let someone else worry about it, 
it doesn't connect. That, I mean, it's not a great letter. I don't want to get that letter. No one likes getting that letter, but getting the letter is a whole lot better than not getting anything at all. I am still waiting to hear about a job I applied for three months ago, even though I know the person who got the job. I'm sure that company thinks they've dispossessed all the candidates. They have not. Okay. Now the recruiters are going to say, because I know this is how they comment when I post about this is LinkedIn, is that these people don't actually deserve more than the form letter. Why? Well, they didn't even meet the base criteria and therefore they should never have even applied in the first place. Now to those recruiters, <laughs> when I get salty, I simply ask, well, oh, so you're saying your job posts were crystal clear and it was very clear how good and how well, that that person wasn't qualified? By the way, we've all seen the statistics that say if you have six requirements and you're a dude and you only meet five, you're going to hit apply. And if you're a woman and you don't, you see, you only meet five, you don't apply at all. And we're trying to fix that. But now you're going to tell me because they didn't meet criteria, the, the basic requirements, they're not worth having a conversation with, that they're dead to you. Ugh. Right? Look, most job postings are poorly written, and we will talk about how to make them better in a moment. But if you, you know, the tr we just. They're written in a way that expects that we need to troll the, the seafloor, which means we need to write them in very broad ways. And to be crystal clear, to be brutally honest, most recruiters don't actually understand the jobs they are writing job postings for, right? If you are not a machine learning expert as a recruiter, you are still expected to write a machine learning job posting. And since you don't know the actual ins and outs of what the job is, and you shouldn't because you're a recruiter, not a machine learning person, how are you expected to describe the job to a professional machine learning person? You can't, so you hedge your bets. You use broad strokes, you use safe terms, you use things like, uh, you know, must have an intermediate level of experience with Excel, except the words intermediate level mean nothing. Does that mean they know what a VLOOKUP table is or they know how to build a pivot table? Or does it mean they know how to read a formula? Or does it mean they know how to do data entry? All those things are different and you could absolutely categorize all of those as intermediate level. But since you don't actually know, how am I as the candidate supposed to know what the hell you mean by that? And since I don't know what that is, and since you've made it super, 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 super easy for me to apply, I'm just going to hit the button. But don't you dare as recruiters say that I'm to blame as the candidate. Sorry, got on my high horse, there we are. We've built a massive set of systems designed to attract as many applicants as possible, and then we begrudge the candidates for applying. Holy shnikes, what a wow, what a world we live in, that sucks. Now, to the 10 people who survive the first pass of potentially, you know, getting removed, they get the same people, you know, the, the people who go from 20 to 10, those people who got rejected because they didn't have the best cover letter, they didn't have all of the requirements, they get the same cover letter. They got the same form letter, right? These are the people who are not unqualified, but the system will treat them as the same riffraff who cluttered up the ATS. Here are people who have real skill and talent. They might be perfect for a different job in your company, but you are giving them the tinfoil. Yeah. So let's look at those 80 people as a group for a second. Are they bad people? No. 
They had ambition or gumption to complete an application process, which by the way, is not always easy. So they're not lazy. They have some skill, not just the ones that you wanted for this particular job. And since your job as a recruiter is to look through the world through a drinking straw saying, how do I find someone for this job? Not how do I find something great for someone great for this company, which is a different thing. You threw them out. Now, unless your company is tiny, could there be other roles that person could thrive in? Probably. So all that is to say is these are people who are potentially valuable in the future, just not this second. Maybe they'll be valuable as candidates or connections and networks to other candidates or even consumers. Just because they're not valuable to you today doesn't mean you reject them and tell them to screw off, which is effectively what a form letter is. Now, the candidates who get rejected after the phone screen, what do they get? Each one of them spent 30 minutes of their time talking to a recruiter. They gave up their time to the company as a gift and got nothing back. Chances are they get a form letter too, right? Now, what about the handful of people who actually showed up for an interview? The ones who didn't get the job. Now, these are the people who gave a lot of time. They took off maybe vacation from work. Maybe they got dressed up. Maybe they, I don't know, printed up some resumes. Do we still do that? I I sometimes do that. Anyway, there's a good chance that those people won't get the form letter. They're going to get the quick call from the recruiter saying, hey, we decided to go in a different direction. By the way, that's not always true. I get a lot of form letters even when I get the interview. Most of these companies are terrified to give any kind of feedback, right? But that's really what a candidate wants. They've given you this time and energy and passion and and consideration and attention and you've given them jack back. I know companies who actually set up their ATS so that even after the candidates get the phone call rejection, they get another form letter, like a way of nailing the casket shut to make sure no possible positive brand association will ever be left standing. It is the equivalent of just mixing in the dirt to make sure you're dead unbelievable. This is the 99% problem. We reject and how we reject the 99% of the people we don't hire is what's causing half the reason why we can't find new people. The standard recruiting system doesn't fit our model of expectations. The recruiters are going around creating negative brand associations in 99. And by the way, what happens when it's more than hundred applications? It's more 99 people for every person they help hire. What business could expect to piss off 99% people just to get one customer and feel comfortable about the future? None. That is insanity. Most recruiters are be forced to behave like goldfish, approaching each new requisition as if it's the first one or their last one. Once I fill this role, I'm done. Then a new requisition comes in and they're surprised, but they start the whole thing cold from a clean sheet of paper. They don't start with the people they just talked to. They don't start with candidates who almost got the job. They start by putting the job into the ATS, push it out to the world and collect a whole new slew of people they can really piss off again. Recruiters have become slaves to the ATS. They're sending form letters. They're rejecting rejecting candidates without feedback. They're taking people's time and giving nothing back to them. I don't understand the expectation that these people who got the tinfoil form letter would expect to apply again. I could, I have hundreds of examples of recruiters saying, I found a great candidate, but they saw where I came from. They had already talked to a different recruiter who treated them poorly and they're never going to talk to me again. 
You are poisoning your own well, recruiters. You're making your jobs harder. But I don't blame you because that's the way the machinery is expecting you to live your life. That's what they want you to do. That's the expectation because to them, just make another haystack, right? Recruiting assumes that every company who has a role, who has an opening, they have all the power. And there are an unlimited number of people they can talk to. And even if there weren't an unlimited people, there will always be more people. That all these people will willingly jump through hoops for the chance to potentially one day, hopefully, fingers crossed, get that job. Does that sound like the modern talent playing field? Is that how you hire Oprah? No. So when recruiters complain about how hard it is to find talent, it's not true. There is plenty of talent out there. Plenty. They just don't want to talk to a recruiter. And why would they? After engaging with a recruiter and being given the tinfoil letter over and over and over again, no one wants to say, ooh, give me more of that. They might be blissfully happy in their current role, or maybe they just got worked over by recruiters and companies. They've decided it's not worth engaging. The recruiter was born into a world where burning an applicant or burning a candidate never had negative consequences. There's always more fish in the sea right? But in this interconnected world, in a place where there are long memories and searchable emails, right? And I love doing that. Every time I get an email from a recruiter, I immediately go back to my Gmail and search for their name and see, have they spammed me before? The callousness, the process is coming back to haunt recruiters and haunt recruiting and haunt companies. People remember and will refuse to be treated like that way again. All right. I'm going to wrap this up in a minute. Recruiting doesn't have to feel like some sort of dire Cormac McCarthy novel. Why paint such a bleak picture, even though it's accurate, of modern recruiting? Well, it's because change is necessary, and that change will come in the form of employer branding. The machinery that recruiters have been running for so long just doesn't work anymore. It's broken, but we keep feeding it fuel in the hopes that we can inch it along another day or two. Right? We're building these adversarial relationships. We're building negative emotions. We're cajoling, and let's be fair, candidates are lying. They're lying recruiters who are covering for lying, lying hiring managers and expecting to call this good. It's necessary to look at this situation and see what it is. Unmaintainable. The machine creates 99 angry and frustrated prospects for everyone it might even bother extend an offer to. And by the way, if 40% of those offers go rejected, do it again. Those 99 people tell their friends. They tell social media. They tell their networks. You piss off one data scientist, guess what? You might as well have pissed them all off. Right? To them, you are making your job harder every day. And when you only have a hammer, every problem looks like the same solution. Recruiters only know how to recruit. That's what they're paid to do. That's what they're expected to do. I do not begrudge them. I get it. I understand that. This isn't a blame game. This is how they're equipped. This is what they're expected to do. They don't have spare time to try something new. Their KPIs are all about creating and clearing haystacks, even though those haystacks make their lives and jobs harder. They aren't blamed for it. I don't blame them for that. But it also means they can't actually be the ones to solve the problem that got created. Employer brand is how we're going to solve that. It's not a tool. It's not a platform. It's not a website. It's not a course. It's not a project. It's a way of seeing the world. 
it's a way of looking at the system totally so you can change the system. It is a philosophy book, right? It's philosophy in action. And in seeing it that way allows you to solve the important talent problems in your company and help your company grow. But of course, all this is problematic because we haven't yet even defined what employer brand is. Thus concludes chapter section two, episode two, I guess, of season two of the Talent Cast, which is the audiobook of Talent Chooses You 2.0, the return, the revenge, the son of, the daughter of, what the heck. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much to recruitmentmarketing.com for sponsoring this episode, for sponsoring the whole season. Go to recruitmentmarketing.com to take a look at their community for recruitment marketing professionals. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.